You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to this week's Domecast, a political podcast from the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. I'm Colin Campbell from the News and Observer. Thanks for stopping by this week. Uh, we got a great show coming up for you. We've got a special guest in the first segment, and then we're going to talk a little bit later about the uh, U.S. Senate uh, Democratic primary and uh, go through a rundown of the four candidates vying for that. And of course, we'll wrap up, as always, uh, with the ever popular Headliners of the Week segment. So we're going to get right to it now, since we've got kind of a jam-packed show this week. Uh, as you may have read in the NNO in the last week or so, we are rolling out a brand new uh, partnership with PolitiFact, the uh, national fact-checking site. Uh, we're going to be launching PolitiFact North Carolina in the coming days and uh, fact-checking on a lot of the uh, North Carolina political issues, the uh, 2016 campaign, the legislature, and many, many other uh, subjects. And joining me now is the founder of PolitiFact, uh, Bill Adair, who's also a professor just down the road at uh, Duke University. Uh, Bill, thanks for coming on Domecast this week. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, tell us a little about, uh, uh, obviously, most people, I think, who are listening to a political podcast are at least somewhat familiar with PolitiFact. They would recognize the truth of meter. They've seen the pants on fire rating. Uh, why expand uh, a service like PolitiFact to the state level uh, in the way that you guys have done in other states and, and now in North Carolina? I, you know, when we launched PolitiFact in 2007, it was really clear very quickly that the truth of meter works as well on a governor or a mayor as it does on a presidential candidate. And so I remember thinking right when we launched, this is going to work um, and this can be scaled in every state in the country. And so once we got established and were well-known, uh, newspapers began to approach us and ask if they could do PolitiFact in their states and be, in effect, franchises, although it's not technically a franchise agreement. And so we started with PolitiFact Texas in 2010, and then PolitiFact Georgia, PolitiFact Florida, and now we have 17 states. Uh, North Carolina will be the 17th state with PolitiFact um, doing with local reporters, doing uh, fact checks following the, the PolitiFact procedures and publishing on their own area of the PolitiFact website. And it's been a great success, um, particularly at the state and local level. Politicians really care about the truth of meter rating that they get. And they uh, and I think in many cases are more careful about what they say because of it. Yeah, so you guys see sort of an immediate impact, and uh, when, when people realize that they're going to be politifacted uh, at this <laughs> level, that the, they're a little bit more careful and uh, are, are more ready to back up their statements than they might be without this kind of service going on. Absolutely. In Georgia, for example, uh, the mayor of Atlanta uh, told his staff that when they wrote uh, speeches or statements for him that he wanted to make sure they were accurate because he never wanted to earn anything lower than a mostly true from PolitiFact. And I, I uh, really uh, I think that uh, is happening in a lot of places that we don't know. And I think there's just been a lot of recognition of fact checking, not just by PolitiFact, but by other news organizations. And so I think politicians are becoming more careful with their words in some cases. You know, it doesn't mean that there aren't plenty of falsehoods out there for us to call out. Um, I think there's still uh, lots of lots of inaccuracies in the political discourse, but particularly at the state and local level. Um, I think fact checking really has an impact. 
Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, for folks who haven't uh, seen some of our announcements about it, we uh, are actually adding staff uh, for this project, which is always great to see in the, the news business these days. A lot of times uh, you, you see these projects added on and it's just on the existing reporters. So here at the Internet, we'll have uh, Will Doran, who readers recognize as the beer columnist and a South, Southwest uh, Wake County reporter shifting over to the political team and, and being our lead fact checker. And then uh, the rest of us on the political team are also being trained as we speak uh, in uh, how to write fact checks. And tell me a little about the PolitiFact process because it's I think it differs a lot from uh, what a lot of other fact checky sites are, are out there doing these days sure um, it's uh uh, incredibly thorough, the process. So it begins with the selection of the statement to fact check. And, and that is really like any journalistic decision. It's a, it's a decision by the PolitiFact reporters and, and editor to say, what are people curious about? If they heard a political claim, did they wonder, really? Is that true? And that's the mission. The, the mission of PolitiFact, like the mission of any journalism, is to answer the information needed to satisfy readers' curiosity. So once uh, once we determine the statement that we're fact-checking, uh, the first thing we do is go to the person or campaign that made the statement and say, hey, we're fact-checking this. Um, give us your factual backup for this. What was your source? And uh, at the same time, as we await a reply from them, we do our own research. We seek independent sources as much as possible. We want to try to get to nonpartisan sources to people who are not aligned in the political discourse and and particularly go for original sources. When we check a claim from a debate about campaign contributions, for example, uh, we go to the FEC website, the Federal Elections uh, commission website. And, uh, and that I think really distinguishes PolitiFact that, uh, we go, uh, we try really hard to get independent sources to find original documents. Then sort of the final part of the process is the truth of meter rating. And, and this is a process that has evolved, um, since 2007 when we started PolitiFact and the, the uh, process has a lot of integrity to it. It's very thorough uh, at a time in journalism when a lot of articles are getting published in blogs without any editing. Um, PolitiFact actually has more editing than a typical news story. There's a requirement that three editors or reporters um, look at the truth meter fact check and determine the rating. And, and that is they're almost like a judge, like a jury uh, in coming to their conclusion. So uh all of this together makes for a process that I think is very thorough and and I think, uh, you know, for the most part, reaches the right conclusions about on what's true, half true, false, pants on fire. Yeah, the, the pants on fire rating is sort of one of, I think, a lot of readers' favorite part about uh, reading a, a PolitiFact uh, truth meter article. How do you distinguish between a statement you just read as false and where you go all the way to say this is pants on fire? So the the difference in the definition is uh, false is a, the statement is not accurate. Uh, pants on fire is the statement is not accurate and it's ridiculous. So uh, a pants on fire is a a ridiculous falsehood. And and the truth meter ratings are very are, are a lot of fun when we get to that point where the the editor will say, well, um, you know, the reporter is suggesting this 
as a false, um, but I could see it as a pants on fire. And then we'll have a discussion, you know, okay, it's false, but is it ridiculously false? And that's, uh, and that's a fun discussion. Um, uh, there is a line there, you know, and, and we try to find it where something isn't just wrong. It's just silly. And, um, so we have plenty of pants on fires, I think roughly nine percent, 10 percent of our ratings end up pants on fire. And uh, and those end up being often the most uh, popular ones with our readers. Yeah, I think the, the more outlandish the statement, <laughs> I probably, probably the statements that rank true people are like, OK, that's fine. We maybe not need to read the the entire article. Um, and it's on, on your main website. You guys are actually able to rank politicians by uh, once you've done enough fact checks on them, how often they they drift into the false and, and pants on fire territory. So what we do, um, we don't actually rank them, but we do show their their report cards. So you can go to uh, PolitiFact North Carolina or any PolitiFact site and look up someone's record. And so, for instance, Senator Tillis um, has been fact-checked a few times and he has a record. Um, and, uh, and so we'll be doing that with uh, the candidates in the 2016 campaign, uh, as well as uh, with plenty of state officials now with PolitiFact North Carolina. And, and, and I think this is valuable. Now, it's important to recognize the report card is not uh, a this is not social science that we're doing here. Um, we are journalists and we're selecting what to fact check based on journalistic priorities. Um, but I would say that the overall report card for somebody is valuable information. So if you look at Donald Trump's record, um, uh, it's pretty extraordinary. More than uh, I think it's somewhere around 60 percent of the things that we have fact checked of Donald Trump have been either false or pants on fire. That's an extraordinary record. Um, I can't recall any major politician having that many falsehoods, um, at least not since Michelle Bachman. And so um, there are other politicians who have better records for accuracy. I think that's valuable information, but I but I would always put an asterisk by it to say uh, this is of the fact checks that we choose to do. Yeah, because I guess it'd be hard to compare a politician who's been fact checked 30 times versus someone who's only been fact checked three or five times. Exactly. Yeah. Do you get much pushback from the politicians that are covering? I mean, this is sort of, uh, I guess, gutsier journalism than you typically see with the, the sort of he said, she said approach to reporting versus saying this is outright wrong. So we get a variety of responses and often those responses for an individual politician or pundit will vary based on their needs. Uh, so um, many politicians respect PolitiFact and have indicated they're more careful with their words. Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush um, have uh, both used the phrase, I'm, you know, politifacted. I'm going to get politifacted here, they've said, so I'm going to be more careful. Um, and that's very reassuring. To me, that shows the impact that fact-checking is having in the political discourse. Um, but there are other times when politicians are unhappy with the ratings that they get. Uh, they'll complain sometimes about um, the choice of things that we decide to fact check, sometimes about our methodology. Uh, and we take the complaint seriously. We, we want to make sure that our work is solid. If we've made a mistake, we correct it. If a mistake resulted in a, um, in a bad rating, we'll change the rating. Um, but I think often the complaint 
complaint is, um, I wish you guys didn't exist, you know, <laughs> and <laughs> darn fact checkers. <laughs> so once this uh, gets going, uh, where, where will people uh, be seeing uh, PolitiFact North Carolina showing up uh, and be able to check up on what's going on? So it'll be at PolitifactNC.com, um, also accessible uh, through the News and Observer website. And uh, and it'll also be in the print edition of the News and Observer. So uh, for subscribers like me, um, that'll be great to be able to get it in my daily paper. Yeah, absolutely. So lots of places to keep up with the fact checks as, uh, as we get rolling and certainly be lots of facts to check in uh, what's going to be a very busy election year here in North Carolina. Absolutely. But Bill Adair has been joining me. He's the founder uh, and contributing editor of PolitiFact, uh, talking about the new PolitiFact North Carolina that we're launching here in Raleigh at the News Observer. Thanks so much for stopping by, Bill. Thanks for having me. And we'll be right back. We'll take a quick break and we'll uh, talk more about the uh, Democratic candidates for Senate in just a few minutes. We all want to be recognized because sometimes we want our voices heard. And we want to recognize you when you come to make your voice heard at the voting booth. This election, you'll be asked to show a photo ID at the polls. And if for some reason you can't get one, no worries. You'll still be able to vote. Just come to the polls and we'll help you cast your ballot. This election, be recognized because every voice matters. For information or help getting a free ID, visit voterid.nc.gov. Welcome back to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the News and Observer. For this segment, we're going to take a look at a little bit of a deeper dive into the U.S. Senate primary among the Democratic candidates, uh, the side of the race that's been a little bit more interesting in that the uh, desire among Democrats to get a sort of higher profile candidate like uh, former Senator Kay Hagan to jump in the race and challenge incumbent Republican Senator Richard Burr uh, proved to be unsuccessful. So they uh, sort of struggled to get a high profile candidate. And the uh, end result is a race among four uh, Democratic candidates, none of whom have a huge amount of name recognition. There is a front runner, uh, but the actual outcome on March 15th is a little bit up in the air in terms of who will be ultimately the nominee for the Democrats. So I wanted to take a look at uh, those candidates and sort of try to go through some of the differences uh, among them as uh, folks try to make a choice uh, between them. And, you know, it's an interesting race in that more than uh, 50% of Democratic primary voters in recent polls said they uh, did not have a, a opinion of either of the four candidates um, and had not made a decision. So be interested to see when people make up their minds between now and the primary, what the result of that ends up being. I wanted to list off the candidates. Obviously, I mentioned the front runner. That's uh, former state representative Deborah Ross from Raleigh. Uh, she's been out of the legislature a couple of years working for the uh, regional transit agency now known as Go Triangle as their uh, lead attorney taking a return into politics uh, to take on this uh, chance at unseating Richard Burr. She's got success, uh, some major endorsements uh, from the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee as well as uh, Emily's List that are backing her. Also in the race, uh, a few folks who are making a, a fairly big jump into uh, running into this race. Uh, Kevin Griffin, who's a owner of a, a Durham uh, temp staffing sort of agency, and uh, he's making his first run for political office, sort of taking on the outsider status in this race. Chris Ray, who is the mayor of Spring Lake, which is a suburb of Fayetteville, uh, he is uh, would, would be making a pretty big, significant uh, jump if he was able to go from Spring Lake to the United States Senate. Uh, he's got sort of an interesting background, having been an in the military, serves in the National Guard, uh, works into healthcare nonprofit uh, down in the Fayetteville, uh, Cumberland County area. Uh, so he's sort of banking on his biography being sort of a, a unconventional candidate running, but somebody who uh, people can identify with. 
The uh, fourth candidate is uh, sort of the long shot guy in this race, Ernest Reeves, who is a retired army captain from the uh, Greenville area. He's uh, run for office on several other occasions, uh, including a run against uh, Kay Hagan for Senate a couple years back. Uh, didn't pull more than about 10% at the time. Uh, so he's probably the least likely of, of the four of them, but uh, still someone who's uh, running a campaign, appearing at events around the state, uh, appearing in, in the one debate that was held on this uh, particular race. It's interesting to me how they've aligned with the presidential candidates in the race. Uh, Deborah Ross uh, would seem to be sort of the the logical partner for Hillary Clinton if she's the uh, Democratic Party's presidential nominee. The other three, Ross, uh, or not Ross, uh, Reeves, Griffin and Ray have all uh, voiced uh, some degree of sympathy with uh, Bernie Sanders, if not outright endorsing him. Uh, Ray, in particular, has been using the hashtag on Twitter, uh, feel the Ray burn. So it seems like they're trying to capitalize on some of the uh, Bernie Sanders fever among some of the the more liberal sets. Uh, All three of the uh, non-front-running candidates have been quick to attack Deborah Ross. They say she's uh, not been at some of the events that they've been at around the state. Uh, They criticize her record as being uh, perhaps too liberal because she used to be head of the ACLU in North Carolina, and they worry that that could result in some uh, major attack ads from the Burr and, and Republican establishment going into the uh, general election, something that they say as sort of outsiders who don't have as much of a voting record, they would not have. Uh, so that's sort of the rundown of, of who these folks are. We wanted to give you a little sense of what they sound like uh, as they head out on the campaign trail. So we've uh, pulled together some snippets of the uh, one debate that was held in the race uh, at WRAL-TV a couple, a week, about a week or so ago. Uh, and uh, we'll hear from a little bit of them on the sort of the, the key issues during that. We'll start off with one where uh, I don't think the candidates really had a whole lot of difference in their positions, but they did have uh, varying ideas as to how they'll tackle uh, the health care needs of the country and, and how they tweak the Affordable Care Act uh, going forward. Uh, so we'll hear a little bit from that. We'll start with a, a clip from Kevin Griffin. Uh, he'll be followed up immediately by Ernest Reeves, then Deborah Ross, and then Chris Ray. So let's take a listen. But as a small business owner, I can say that the plans are onerous, they're confusing, and they are not inviting or engaging for employers. So we need to clean them up, streamline them so that more employers can easily adopt them. But we also have to remember those people that have retired early, that are not necessarily eligible for Medicare yet, are still on a fixed income. So what I want to do is to allow them to buy into Medicare early so that they can continue to have care. I would repeal the Cadillac tax in addition to um, try to work on a bipartisan uh, basis to uh, work out the employer mandates, which is a problem. And I would do everything I could to work on a bipartisan support to bring down the premiums and also make sure that the subsidies that we are paying out are able, that we're able to sustain them. And so, and then I'll also work to try to bring down the cost of medications. I would work to make more incentives for opting in to Medicaid because I think that's better for all of our people. Repeal the medical device tax and not penalize insurers who provide excellent health care to their workers. It's important that we know that there was over 40 million people in our nation that didn't have access to health care. And until there, and unless our Republican counterparts put something forward better than what we have, it's important that we work together, both parties, to be able to fix the current laws, the current ACA that's in place. 
And that was the candidates on the healthcare issue from the WRAL debate. Uh, and in that debate, I think the one thing that stuck out as sort of a difference between the different candidates in terms of substance uh, was their view on immigration. Uh, they had the question of do they support a, a pathway to citizenship or simply a, a pathway to stay in the country for uh, folks here illegally. Uh, and that's where uh, the candidates split. We saw uh, Chris Ray and Deborah Ross, who were supportive of a pathway to citizenship, and then Kevin Griffin and Ernest Reeves, who were not. So we'll hear their takes on that, uh, starting with Chris Ray, then we'll hear Deborah Ross, followed by Kevin Griffin, and last, Ernest Reeves. Absolutely. I believe that there should be a pathway to citizenship uh, here in uh, America. Uh, it's critical that we make sure that we take care of those individuals who are contributing to our economy and doing all the things the right way. I would favor the same bipartisan bill that passed the U.S. Senate two years ago that offered a pathway to citizenship for people who had certain background checks, paid their taxes, and followed strict guidelines. Um, that bill also would have secured our borders and reunified families. It was supported by the North Carolina Farm Bureau, but Richard Burr voted against it. I would have voted for it. Well, David, I do not favor the path to citizenship, but what I am putting forward is a plan that actually involves and engages all of the people that are here on an undocumented basis, brings them into a comprehensive work permit program so that they are an active part of our society, both from an economic and a legal standpoint. That way they are able to make uh, use of the social services that we have available because they are paying into those, so they get that adequate return. I do not believe that there should be the reward for citizenship as a part of that because we already have a, a position and a process in place for people to achieve that citizenship, and I think they should still have to follow that. I do not favor a pathway to citizenship, but I do favor a pathway to stay. And that was the candidates on immigration from the WRAL Senate debate. Uh, so some interesting uh, candidates and uh, different uh, differences of uh, styles and even a few places of opinion among these four Democrats. So we'll see what happens on March 15th. And that does it for our look at the uh, Democratic Senate debate or Senate uh, campaign. Um, and we will be right back in just a few moments with uh, Headliners of the Week. So you smash your thumb with a hammer, Ouch! you race to the hospital, and they ask, what medications are you taking? Thankfully, in your wallet is a list with your medications on it. Wife went to safemedication.com, downloaded the free template, and wow, that pink pill has a real name. To create your own medication list, visit safemedication.com or talk with your hospital pharmacist. Brought to you by the American Society of Health System Pharmacists. Welcome back to this week's Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell, and now it's time for... Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Head, 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 headliner of the week. And we got a full room here for this week's Headliners of the Week. Six journalists joining us as we broadcast to you from a room in the McClatchy Interactive Building that is actually called the Bat Cave Conference Room. So uh, probably the first and perhaps only time that we'll, uh, we'll be broadcasting to you from the Bat Cave uh, here in downtown Raleigh. So joining us, uh, we've got uh, our usual cast of uh, Domecast uh, Headliner of the Week panelists, but uh, as well as some other uh 
journalist from around McClatchy whose uh, bylines you'll recognize, but perhaps uh, not so much their voices as they've uh, not been on our podcast before. Uh, we're going to start this week with uh, Ben Brown from The Insider. Ben, who's your headliner of the week? Okay, I'm probably not going to win, but uh, I'm going to nominate the Zika virus. Um, it's the fifth case that's been documented. News came out this week that a Wake County woman had contracted the uh, the virus while traveling abroad uh, in Central and South America, the news reads. So uh, with the fifth popping up and one popping up in Wake County, I'll say the Zika virus. Yeah, we had a story in the paper a couple of weeks ago that uh, sort of indicated that it wasn't going to be that big of an issue this far north just because the climate's different. But uh, I'm wondering if those, those uh, scientists are starting to reevaluate just knowing how much travel gets around with uh with this type of virus yeah the, the travel considerations i mean I'm, I'm no expert we should probably cut this out but uh but <laughs> the, 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 political journalist opine so. about public health issues <laughs> <laughs> thanks ben uh and we'll turn next to lynn bonner from the news and observer lynn who's your headliner my headliner is ben brown who is the swiss army knife of american journalism uh he reports writes shoots video edits composes music i mean Domecast. the reason Domecast doesn't hurt your ears when you listen to it is because of Ben Brown. Uh, he's a, a great guy and a great professional who's leaving us for uh, the League of Municipalities. Uh, thanks a lot, Mooneyham. Uh, so I'm going to nominate Ben as our headliner. Ben Brown as a headliner of the week. Yes. Uh, for those of you who are, are unaware, uh, I guess we haven't read the Insider this week with the announcement. Ben is uh, having his last day here at the Insider uh, today, Friday, as we record this. Next week, he will be joining the North Carolina League of Municipalities in a, a community communications role. So uh, we'll, we'll still get to read his writings just in, in sort of a, a different place and a, a different format. But we're certainly going to uh, miss Ben. Um, and turning out, I guess, to Pat Gannon from The Insider. Uh, who's your headliner of the week? A.K.A. Ben's very de- depressed boss because Ben's <laughs> leaving. Um, I'm going to go, I guess, with Lewis Daniel, even though I don't think he's going to win because Ben's been nominated. So <laughs> I will second. I don't know. It's Ben versus the Zika virus so far. <laughs> That's true. I'm going to go with Lewis Daniel. Uh, even though I know, sorry, Mr. Daniel, not, you're not going to win, but uh, he's been the director of the Division of Marine Fisheries since 2007. He resigned this week amid a bunch of kind of uh, ongoing controversies at, at DMF, uh, which is basically that job is a thankless job. I think you've got constant fighting between commercial and recreational uh, fishing interests over, you know, how to manage the best way to manage the um, the fisheries of the state. And so. Uh, Lewis Daniel, who had basically a thankless job, but he is no longer in that job uh, as of this week. All right. Lewis Daniel as a uh, possible headliner of the week. And we're going to jump next over to uh, Jim Morrill from the Charlotte Observer, who is uh, making his debut on Domecast. Although if you read the paper, you see his byline plenty. Uh, He's the main political reporter down in our our sister paper in Charlotte. Jim, uh, who's your headliner of the week? Well, thanks. It's an honor to be on Domecast uh, here. Um, looking at this from a Charlotte perspective, as we usually do on things, I would uh, have to say uh, Governor McCrory and Nick Tennyson from DOT for taking a second look and maybe a, another final look at uh, the I-77 toll contract in Mecklenburg County, which is a really uh, controversial thing down there. And they, they there was a Texas sister company that went bankrupt. Uh, this week. And so they went down there to look at that. Tennyson did. And so they're taking another look at it. Yeah. So uh, so 
I guess it's possibly an out for the McCrory administration on this tolling contract. It seems like everyone in the Charlotte area, every politician that uh, has any sort of footprint down in that northern Mecklenburg area is concerned about this idea of, of toll lanes on I-77 and does not want to be the person who, who puts this into place. But is there a sense that this could really uh, be the, the out that, that gets this project killed and back to the drawing board as to how to widen the highway down there? Yeah, I think so. I think even Roy Cooper came out yesterday and uh, and uh, uh, urged him to cancel the contract. So that was a, a big news on his part. But there are a lot of Republican voters up in North Mecklenburg who don't like that contract. Yeah, and, and certainly it seems like it's fair game for any politician that wants to, to beat the governor over the head with that issue, whether it's yes. le- legitimately his fault or not that we have the uh, toll lanes going into place. It was interesting to see Tennyson like, essentially jump on a plane the minute that story broke out of Texas to go down and investigate and and see if the bankruptcy wasn't just the just the uh trick to to solve this problem yeah good timing (laughs) yep all right thanks jim and we'll turn next to craig jarvis from the news and observer craig who's your headliner of the week well uh, it's unfortunate on uh, this ben brown day that i'm finally choosing my first non-human uh nomination (laughs) yeah (laughs) and i'm hosting too so i'm gonna i'm gonna go with hogs because there's been this brewing battle between the farmers and environmentalists in the state uh earlier this year the uh, a group formed uh, on, to advocate for basically the pork industry, spent a lot of money on TV ads saying things like this: the Black River, which runs through the heart of uh, hog country, is, uh, I don't know that they use the word pristine, but they said it's clean. Environmentalists said, not the last time we looked, and they went back out and tested, and they contend that it's uh, just full of uh, indicators of hog waste. Stuck in the middle is the little pig, so uh, that's my that's my choice this week. Yeah. All right. Uh Pigs uh, in uh, the uh, the hog waste parts of the state. Uh, interesting choice for headliner of the week and, and one that sort of, I guess, goes along with this News and Observer tradition of uh, uh, being interested in hogs. Uh, you know, we all, all remember Andy Curlis's story about the uh, pig that went to Japan to be eaten um, and then the uh, the Pulitzer winning series uh, back many years ago on, uh, on hog waste in uh, eastern North Carolina. So... Uh, Always uh, a bit of an interesting story in the news here in North Carolina on uh, hogs and the uh, cleanup surrounding their uh, droppings. Uh, we will turn last on our uh, panel here to uh, another new voice uh, on Domecast, Anna Douglas, who is our uh, Washington correspondent based in the McClatchy, D.C. Bureau. Uh, Anna is uh, in Raleigh along with Jim for our, our PolitiFact training, and we heard from Bill Adair earlier. Uh, so, Anna, who's your uh, pick for Headliner of the Week? Someone out of uh, D.C., I'm sure. Yeah, so I'm going to go with uh, Congresswoman Alma Adams from Greensboro. This is my first Headliner of the Week nomination. I'm not totally sure what the rubric's supposed to be and who chooses this. But uh, but anyway, um, Congresswoman Al, uh, Adams uh, s- submitted a bill. It was it was passed, but there was some opposition to for to rename a post office in Winston Salem after Maya Angelou. Uh, obviously, she's known as a she's passed now, but she's a she was an author and civil rights activist and whatnot. Nine Republicans in the House opposed this bill, voted against this bill. Uh, normally, these are not controversial efforts. In fact, there were, I think, 11 total this week, different bills that were introduced to to name a post office or a building after someone or to honor someone. This was the only one that drummed up some controversy. Uh, one of the Republicans who voted against it was Jeff Duncan from South Carolina. Uh, Congressman Duncan said that he was opposed to this because of uh, Maya Angelou's past support of the communist regime in in Cuba. Uh, He had problems with her support of Fidel Castro. So uh, I think the other Republicans kind of fell in line with that as well. 
Yeah, so that's uh, interesting to see that uh, jump that way. So none of the Republicans from North Carolina were willing to, to go up against Maya Angelou on this. Yeah, all, all of the, the North Carolina delegation uh, in the House supported this uh, just by, by vote. I mean, I'm not sure that any, anyone else got up besides Ms. Adams to, to speak for it. But, you know, Maya Angelou lived in North Carolina for the last 30 years of her life. And, of course, she's known as a professor at Wake Forest. And so there there seems to be a legitimate claim to, to naming a post office after Maya Angelou, um, it was just this kind of seed of, of any support for communists that, that these nine Republicans had had a problem with. Yeah, and that's interesting to me because I don't remember during her lifetime or even when she passed away a year or two ago, there being a whole lot of controversy around her, her legacy. Was this all based around some sort of publication that uh, had, had gone in? I saw, I guess, the story that the D.C. Bureau had, had mentioned something about American Spectator magazine had had sort of written this Maya Angelou takedown a, a few years ago. Is that Yeah, that's what, what it stems on? from. That's what it stems from. I mean, I'm, I'm not certain that I'm not an expert on this, so I don't want to debunk that she ever did support Fidel Castro. But that is the one reference that seems to kind of be where, where people can put uh, some stake into this. Um, it's certainly not the thing that Maya Angelou is best known for. So, yeah, maybe worth a PolitiFact fact check. Sure. <laughs> sure. That sounds yeah. like a good one we could do. All right. Thanks, Anna. And that uh, takes us through our uh, large uh, panel of, of six different journalists. So we've got Zika virus. We've got Ben Brown. We've got uh, Lewis Daniels. With, uh, uh, we've got uh, Pat McCrory and Nick Tennyson on tolls. We've got uh, Maya Angelou and we've got uh, the little piggy that... Um, polluted a stream <laughs> so out of those uh, although those are all uh, great suggestions i have to go with uh ben brown on this one because ben has been uh, an excellent member of our team for the last uh almost two years i guess a year and a half now um being here with the uh, insider and, and helping us cover all the the craziness of the the long session last year um Little in fact, Ben and I actually go back to a, a previous job, a previous paper. We both uh, were at the Stateport Pilot in Southport, a small town on the coast, uh, one summer when I was a lowly intern, and, and Ben was uh, helping teach me a little bit about journalism as someone who was more experienced. Uh, and I was, you know, getting my start. So it's, it's been fun to work with him again here at the the News and Observer, and he's done a, a lot of great work. Domecast would not be really possible, as Lynn said, without a. Uh, Ben's help and an audio engineering, you know, you hear his voice at the beginning, you hear his voice at the end. That's not going to change. But we're not going to record that now that he's gone. Um, but uh, music too. yeah, the, the music is pretty key. I mean, I don't think any of the rest of us can can compose music or theme music of any sort. And, and Ben was able to, to jump in there and give us an original theme. Yeah. So so we'll have Ben's music and voice at the beginning of the end, much the way we have Andy Curlis's uh, rapping headliners of the week, uh, which is also pretty by Ben, so it's it's technically you know part of part of his legacy here um, as well. And then you know if you if you never watch the the videos that that Ben did for the Insider um, that sort of went really far in depth on a lot of issues, go back to the the Insider's YouTube channel and, and check those out because those are uh, pretty good, uh, impressively done looks at, at some of the big issues that are, are still facing the the legislature and the state government here. So uh, Ben, uh, any any parting words to, to Domecast listeners? No, I mean I'm, I'm excited about where I'm going, but at the same time time it is difficult to say goodbye to the team here because that's been a pretty central part of my life for the past couple of years and um uh i might be echoing what andy Curlis said when he left but uh i really do hope that everybody listening knows how hard everybody works here because working in the legislative environment I mean, a 40-hour work week is is fictitious so is a 50-hour work week and on and on i mean it it, it takes a lot to do it and uh, i'm 
endlessly impressed by everybody I work with. And like I told everybody uh, in my farewell emails that I, I, I would be intimidated by everybody here, if not for the fact that everybody was also extremely gentle and supportive and nice and fun. Because sometimes, you know, you, you get to these these late night situations where the legislature is kind of going late. It's 11 p.m. and we have deadlines and we have to file stuff. And it's a situation where it should be kind of stressful. But for the fact that everybody here also knows how to kind of smile in those situations. And I think that says a lot about the people doing this kind of work. So when you guys listening read something by anybody here, um, just know that a lot goes into it. And um, I leave extremely impressed and extremely honored to have worked with everybody here. So thank you. All right. Thanks a lot, Ben, and, and best of luck in your, your new adventures. We'll be glad to still see you around the legislative building, I hope, uh, in I'll the, be the few months. I'll be there. All right. And that does it for this week's uh, edition of Domecast. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we will see you next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 